Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Last week in our study of the Book of Romans, Pastor Murphy showed us the religious confusion about the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Today we'll see four reasons we should study this doctrine in Romans chapter 4. Well, let's go to Romans chapter 4, and let me read from verse number 1 and following, and then we'll deal with our text. Romans chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, What shall we say then, that Abraham our father as pertaining to the flesh have found? For if Abraham were justified by works, he have whereof to glory but not before God. You see the word glory there is the word boast. So Paul is saying if Abraham became saved by works, he could boast before God. Uh, For what saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you work for something, when I, an employer takes you and you do your work, when I pay you, I'm not doing you a favor. See? So uh, you don't even have to thank me when I pay you once you're doing work for me. That's a debt. And that's what the Bible is emphasizing here. As long as it has to do with any kind of works, it's a debt. It is something God owes you. And therefore, you can glory in it. You can boast in it. It's not a gratuitous gift that God has given to you. This is what Paul is, is trying to emphasize. Now to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Even as David also described the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Now this is an interesting psalm because Paul quotes Psalm 32, one of the great penitential psalms. And that particular psalm has to do with David's atrocious act of committing adultery with Bathsheba. And then uh, David goes to God and all David does, and he can't do anything else. He can't undo what he's done. Uh, how do you undo that? Uh, so what David does, he comes before God and he, he begs God for forgiveness. And he pleads for God's mercy and God's grace. And God gratuitously forgave David. And rather than impute David's sin to his account, uh, God did not impute the, the, the account. He imputed God's righteousness to the account. So Paul is using David here as an example that this whole doctrine that I'm teaching you is not new and not novel. This is something very ancient. It's how God dealt with man in the Old Testament and how God dealt with man today. Now we don't think that way, do we? We think that there was one way of being saved in the Old Testament and another way of being saved in the New Testament. Paul would point out in this chapter, that's not the case. There's only one door. There's only one way. And we must all come to that same door. We must all come in the same way. If any man comes in the other way, a thief and a robber. See? So Paul is drawing this to the attention. He said, Cometh then this blessedness upon the circumcision only, or upon the uncircumcision also. 
For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in, when he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Now in uncircumcision, but in uncircumcision. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of his righteousness of faith, which he had yet been uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. The argument here is, when Abraham became justified, it predated his act of circumcision. I will point that out to you. 14 years before Abraham was circumcised, God had already justified Abraham. So circumcision is not necessary for salvation. Later on in the chapter, Paul will deal with the, the law, etc., etc. So in chapter 3, the Apostle Paul uses logic and reason and uses a lot of legal terms in order that he may give them an exact understanding of what justification by faith is. By the time we finish with chapter 3, uh, Paul tells us very clearly in simple terms that justification is God declaring the repentant sinner righteous and forgiven on the basis of his faith in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. That, in essence, is what justification is all about. But again, as I pointed out to you last Sunday morning, it is one thing to lose logic and reason and abstract reasoning to come to a position. But the average man sitting in the pew is not a philosopher. In many cases, he's not a thinker either. All he wants is something very practical and something that he can understand and he can comprehend. He wants to see the truth fleshed out. He wants to see it demonstrated in the life. And that's why the Apostle Paul uh, uses uh, Abraham in this particular passage. And last Sunday, I pointed out to you that this is not something coincidental or something accidental that Paul would choose Abraham. I mentioned to you that Abraham was the Jewish icon. He was the original progenitor of the Jewish race. He was the embodiment of Jewish nationalism and religious pride. Abraham was, uh, their identity, their ethnic identity was uh, encompassed in Abraham. And any sense of spiritual security they found in Abraham. So Paul knows what he's doing. And he understood that all their national and theocratic hopes were wrapped up in this person, Abraham. And that is why he chooses Abraham as the model to show them what this matter of justification is all about. By the way, you remember how important Abraham was to the Jews and in our Lord's dealing with them? We have a classic example of this in, in uh, John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is telling the, 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 the Jews that if the Son should set you free, you shall be free indeed. It's a great debate and discussion uh, about freedom, what freedom is all about. But you remember, every time our Lord began to deal with the Jews, they threw one thing at him again and again. You know what it was? In chapter 8, verse 33, he, they said to him, We be Abraham's seed, and never win bondage. In other words, Abraham is the progenitor of the Jewish race. And we came through the lineage of, of Abraham. He's such an important figure. Again, in chapter 8, verse 39, they said to him, the answer said to him, Abraham is our father. Not only are his seed, but he is our father. And then in chapter 8, verse 53, he says to they said to Jesus, 
are you greater than Abraham? That gives you the, 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 the preeminent place in which Abraham uh, was held in the esteem of these Jews. The apostle Paul, as you know, is a Pharisee. The apostle, you know, was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. Uh, read Philippians chapter 3. And the apostle understood very clearly that the entire Jewish nation depended so much on this main uh, iconic character called Abraham. So if Paul can prove that this man, Abraham, the progenitor of the Jewish race, got saved by being justified by faith, he has virtually solved the problem for the Jewish people to say, well, if Abraham needed to be saved this way, how else do you think you're going to get in? And that's why Paul um, comes to this individual. Now, if we analyze chapter 4, um, let me give you an analysis of the chapter before we begin to, to study it. In verses 1 to 5, uh, Paul presents the simple facts of Abraham's justification as recorded by Moses. Remember that he's quoting from Genesis. Now I'm coming to that later on. He's quoting from Genesis. And he's pointing out that Moses recorded how Abraham, the fact of how Abraham got saved. So in verses 1 to 5, he just states the fact. Abraham believed God and it was counted unto him for righteousness. That's the fact. In, in verses 6 to 8, he quotes David. And he uses David to explain the blessings and the benefits of justification apart from works. As I pointed out to you, he quotes from Psalms chapter 32, the penitential psalm. Where David is broken and repents before God. He asks God for forgiveness. And God, rather than impute sin to David, God removed David's sin and forgave David and imputed righteousness to David. So he's now using David, the psalmist of Israel. To confirm what are the blessings of justification, which include forgiveness of sins and the imputation of righteousness. See? So David is now used as well as Moses for that matter. And then in verses 9 to 12, uh, you'll find that he gives an argument there where he shows that justification predated um, Abraham's circumcision. I pointed out to you that circumcision is, was such an important thing for the Jews as well. It was a, a seal that they belonged to the Jewish nation. Uh, as a matter of fact, um, it is still one of the marks if you're Jew today, you still got to be circumcised. It's, it's the fact that you fall in line of, of Abraham. But the problem with that is like all external ordinances that we have, the ordinance takes over the place and it soon becomes the means where people depend upon. It's like baptism. Uh, baptism was never designed to save anybody. Can't save anybody. You go down a, a dry center, you come out a wet center. No difference. See? But you know what? People, people now depend upon baptism. The ordinance has now become the thing. See? The ordinance was symbolic of the fact that you were already saved. And you know when you go down in the water, you're buried with Christ. When you're raised, you're raised with Christ in newness of life. But there's no efficacy in the baptism. But the church... Has told you, you know that when you get sprinkled, it wash away his original sin. See, that was the problem with the Jews as well. That the circumcision, which was given as a sign of redemption, that you belong to the covenant people, it now became the means of becoming part of the covenant people. And they hold missed the entire meaning of the of the, of, 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 uh, of circumcision. So the apostle Paul has to show that when Abraham got 
uh, justified. He was justified without being circumcised. So circumcision cannot be mandatory or necessary for salvation. And then when you go down to um, verses 13 to 17, you'll find that he also points out that Abraham was justified, as I pointed out to you, before the law was given. 430 years before the law was given, Abraham was justified. So the, the law cannot be necessary for salvation either. Because if Abraham got saved without the law, 430 years after the law came, if the law was necessary, well, how could Abraham have gotten saved? The Apostle Paul is thinking of all these objections the Jews are going to raise in the, against his teaching about being saved by faith alone. He knows the arguments they're going to put forward to him. And he's knocking each one of them down before they even come up. He's anticipating uh, these matters. In fact, by the way, by the time you go to verses 13 to 17, the Apostle Paul is going to point out very clearly that it is God who has ordered this chronological, these chronological events because the only way that we can ever have a certainty of assurance of salvation is if it is by faith alone. What if you can't get circumcised, brother? What if you ain't got nothing to be circumcised in? You know, there's some people that are born that way. Don't you know that? The nurse will tell you that. Seriously. Uh, but so if, if circumcision is necessary, you can't be circumcised, what do you mean you lost? So the only way they could be sure salvation can be sure and certain is if a person really, really is saved on the basis of faith alone in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ. There's no other way that you can have surety and certainty of salvation except it's beyond that basis. Any other basis, we got a lot of dispute in here this morning. And finally, in verses 18 to 25, you know what Paul does? Paul gives a section where Paul explains what is true saving faith. That section deals with what is true saving faith. Could I say to you that saving faith is not the same as ordinary faith? And you will see that Paul spends considerable time in explaining the kind of faith that Abraham had that resulted in his conversion. And I, I, I can't wait to deal with that section. Because I really believe that there are people who don't have a clue what saving faith is. And that passage, read it very carefully. You'll see Paul explains the kind of faith that Abraham had that resulted in his justification. So that is what the Apostle Paul does in this section. It's a masterful exposition of this great doctrine of salvation. And you will not find another passage like it anywhere in scripture. Now I am conscious that there may be some people here this morning who would rather that we bypass chapter 4. And uh, the argument was, Pastor, let's go to something more exciting. I'm anticipating that's the way that you, you think in your mind. Pastor, I want something positive. I want something practical, Pastor. I want something life-related. I want something more contemporary and more relevant to my, my special needs. See? I understand that's the way that you're thinking. I can almost hear someone here saying this morning, Pastor Murphy, life is so busy and so tough and so hard. I'm under so much stress. My nerves are frayed and then I come into church and you're asking me to think. 
I don't want to think, Pastor. I just want you to give me some candy and some milk and just make me feel good. See? I don't want to think. I didn't come in church to think. I came in church to get something that's already made. I want a milkshake, Pastor. I don't have any time to chew on meat this morning. Just feed me something superficial and artificial this morning. I understand that that's the way that some people here uh, may think this morning. All I can say to you is what I've said in this church countless times. And I want you to always remember this. If there's nothing you remember with the past of preaching is this. Christianity is about truth. Truth. Never forget that. And truth can only appeal to the mind. It cannot appeal to the emotions. Okay. So if you have a problem with uh, truth, and you have a problem with thinking, I don't think you understand what Christianity is all about. See. Christianity is not something to give you a high. Music will give you a high. But that's not what the purpose of Christianity. Christianity is supposed to give you such a grasp of truth that no matter what circumstance you face in life, your life remains buoyant. See? Not dependent on the weather and the conditions and the emotional situation. But whatever is thrown your way, you get hold of truth because truth never changes. It will buoy up your life in every storm you will face. When you can't sing a song, but you have got hold of the truth, it stabilizes your life and becomes an anchor of your soul. See? And that's why it is so important for us. The right apprehension of truth with the mind will result in an emotional lift. If you want to get your emotional lift, understand biblical truth. It is out of understanding biblical truth that your joy flows as a Christian. It's not the way around. One of the great modern tragedies of the modern church is that people are looking for what I call superficial, instantaneous, artificial highs. They want something that satisfies them immediately. That is why we become in society such a self-indulgent uh, um, society. That is why the, the, the people run after alcohol. They want an immediate high. That's why we got the drug problem. Everybody wants a high. That's why we have the sexual immorality that is so rampant. Everybody wants a high. And they want a quick high. They want an instantaneous high. They don't want that their mind be influenced so that the emotions are moved to, to enjoy anything. That's why we have so much pornography today. They want a high. And the quickest way the high is hit the button on the computer, whoops, and they get a big high. That's what they want, see. And that is why we now have the entertainment industry in the church, because they want a high, see. So the modern church has not escaped this dreadful scourge that we are experiencing on a wider scale. And now we're turning the contemporary church into a platform for entertainment and theatrics. And I am not one person that's going to go down that road. I'm not going down that road. 
my job as a pastor is to speak to your mind and inform you about truth and make the truth understood by you. That's my purpose as a pastor. I'm not here to tickle your ears and make you feel good. See? Because I can't keep tickling the ear. See? You frustrate me if I got to tickle your ear every time you come in here. See? Frustrate you. If you fall in love with truth, well, I don't have to tickle your ear all the time. See? In, in this matter. I cannot stress too much how important the words that our Lord mentioned in, in John chapter 8 is so important when it comes to the Christian life. Our Lord made a statement that the older I get and the longer I live, the more profoundly I understand that statement when he said, and you should know the what? The truth. And the truth should set you free. I repeat, and you should know the truth. And the truth should set you free. The opposite of Freedom is bondage. And the problem today is that people who are in bondage cannot enjoy their Christian life. And that's why there's so many people in bondage to sin, people in bondage to fear and to worry, people in bondage to all forms of insecurity, people in bondage to habit, uh, people in bondage to their own emotional desires and lusts. people in bondage to public opinion, they can't make, make choices because they're wondering how the wind is blowing. And what will people say? People in bondage to political ideology. Uh, and they can't look at truth and, and judge truth. And of course, people in bondage to uncertainty. The only thing that deals with all of these different bondages that people face today. Is the truth will set you free. And that is why it's important for us to understand the liberating truth of scripture. And to understand what Paul is teaching here. So I would say to anyone who is here this morning. I can tell you one thing uh, this morning, that if there's any person in this church sitting here this morning who is doubtful or uncertain about their salvation, I can say to you that you are not enjoying your Christian life. You can't enjoy it. And that is why you have to settle this whole question once and forever. And that is why there's so many Christians who are topsy-turvy. One month, the week they're on the mountain top, the next week down the valley. They're living this, this life of perpetual uncertainty, this roller coaster. They're not too sure what this thing is all about. The Apostle Paul clearly wants that these believers uh, will understand this great doctrine and hold to it. So let me give you quickly uh, this morning four reasons why I think we need to study this chapter. Let me give you four quickly. Number one. I think we need to study this chapter because it gives us greater clarity on this great doctrine of justification. Listen, this is a destiny determining doctrine. And we cannot be in any way misunderstand or misinterpreted. The consequences are eternal for those of us who don't understand this great doctrine. And the, one of the ways that we, why we need to study is because it gives us great guarding. There's too much at stake if we don't understand this great doctrine. And it puts us in a very dubious position as Christians or professed believers if we feel spiritually insecure because we don't understand this great doctrine. And we will never be able to compete in the marketplace of ideas and carry forth our beliefs to men and women if we don't settle this whole matter. I think I've told you this. It might be worth repeating again. 
I remember when I was in Barbados and I was doing some witnessing. I went through a period in my life when I began to doubt. Really began to doubt. And I went out there giving out tracts and talking to people about being saved. But it was all mechanical. Totally mechanical. And I remember I left the visitation and had to go back into the church and sit down and cry out before God and said to him these words. God, I can't believe this. Here I am going all over this place telling people about how to be saved. And here I am not even sure where I stand with you. That was a terrible experience for me. But I, I found that I could not witness with any zeal or any enthusiasm. I found that when I was talking to people, uh, a voice was saying to me, but you're talking to them, but you don't even know yourself. You're not even sure of yourself. See? I don't know if you've ever been through that. I've been through it. So I had to go into the church and sit down and pour my heart before God and said, God, you know, I want to settle this thing right now. Settle it with you right now. See? Because I can't go there telling people that I'm not too sure myself. I had to settle that. So I can say to anybody here who is not too sure where they stand before God, I know one thing. You cannot be positive in your presentation of the gospel. And you cannot be certain what you're saying. And you've got this kind of uneasiness within you. A chapter like this will bring greater certainty to you. In your understanding of what this great doctrine is. And it gives you such a, a, a presentation of the gospel. Such an exquisite exposition that Paul gives in this passage. That by the time you really go through this chapter and see what Paul is saying. If there's any doubt in your mind whatsoever that you are saved only by faith in Jesus Christ. That's almost, that's erased in its totality. See? So the enemy, when he comes to you now, you, you, say, you say to him, what saved the scripture? What saved the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted him for righteousness. See? Don't argue with the enemy, you can't argue with him. Remember in the book of Matthew, when the Lord was being tempted in the wilderness, and the devil came and said, if you be the son of God. Now imagine that. See? So you think you're the son of God? If you're the son of God, do this. Our Lord never once had a debate with him saying, you know what, long before I made you, you know. I made you. See? All, all the Lord did is he went up to the book of Deuteronomy and he says, it is written. And he quoted scripture. And the enemy was put to flight. See? So you need a passage like this. That when you are confronted by the enemy. You need a level of certainty. You need to be able to say. That, like Paul says. You know, this, our father Abraham would have defined. And then he said. What saved the scripture? And then Paul just gave the scripture. And as far as Paul is concerned. That settled it. See? So I think it helps us. Uh, by going through this passage. Because it gives us a greater certainty. A greater comprehension. Of what this real... Listen, I, I, I can't stress too much that our main problem as believers is that we don't know who we belong to. We don't know who we belong to. If we belong to the Lord, a lot of your worry will go if you really believe that. See? If you belong to the Lord, a lot of your fears will go if you really believe that. See? But the reason why we live such haphazard lives is because we really have doubts about whether we belong to Him or not. The day you settle that God is your father and you're his son and that's the end of the story is the day you begin to live your Christian life. But as long as this, this hesitation in your mind, is he really my father? Am I really his son or his daughter? You cannot enjoy the Christian. How can you? See. 
And the Apostle Paul, I believe, understood this in greater depth than we do. And that's why he did it. So number two, it gives us an understanding as well as the Old Testament and a greater appreciation of the book of Genesis. Has it ever occurred to you what's the main book that's under attack from the 19th century right down to the 21st century? Genesis. And why? Because Genesis contains all the core doctrines, all the core essential beliefs. You, you understand that Genesis was attacked for the time Darwin started his theory of evolution. No, you could not believe in Genesis and believe in Darwin as well. And the church compromised. The church came up with something called theistic evolution. That God created by the process of evolution. Now evolution is totally disintegrating. Some of the people who are, one are now talking about an intelligent design. Evolution is a failing System. It's not science, it's pseudoscience. It's a theory, it's a hypothesis. And the evidence does not support it. But the church compromised with it. Genesis has been under attack and it's still under attack today. The Apostle Paul, if you go through his writings, will find that he seemed to have a, a penchant. For Genesis. He always seemed to be going back to Genesis. Let me use a few examples. You remember when Paul is talking about the role of women in the church? Where, where does he go for, to solve that problem? Runs back to Genesis. See? Remember the created order? Man was created first. This was not by accident. This was by design. The man did not fall first. The woman fall first. She was in the transgression. My point is that when you come to the, this particular chapter, once again, you, you find that you, you develop a greater appreciation for the importance of the book of Genesis. Remember when Paul is dealing with the home in Ephesians chapter 5? Where does he go? He goes back to Genesis. See? And then he says, I speak concerning Christ and the church. Even though he's talking about Adam and Eve. See? You remember in Galatians? When he begins to deal with the, the, the contest between law and grace. Where does he go for an example? He goes back to Genesis. He used Hagar and he used Sarah. He said one represented grace. One represented law. See? He used them. And you remember in Corinthians. When he's talking about the illumination. He says God that shined out of darkness. Now shining in our hearts. Where did he get that from? The book of Genesis. See. These are not accidental things. I think God in his foreknowledge foresaw the massive attack on this great book. But notice how interesting that the Apostle Paul is willing to settle the doctrine of salvation on one passage of scripture in Genesis alone. That was sufficient for Paul. What saith the scripture? Abraham believed God and was counted different righteous. I say to you when you come to pass like this, if Paul is so confident that one scripture verse settles the issue of salvation by faith. Brother, that should tell you that we have not fo followed Connie divine fables. We have the word of God. And Paul called, by the way, he quotes Genesis and he said it's scripture. It's God's word, see. This is Paul's teaching on this subject. And I think that it helps us to gain a greater appreciation of the importance of the book of Genesis in relation to the church today. And then thirdly, I mentioned last Sunday that the Apostle Paul uh, used 
this because you want to help others. And I think this is one of the best ways that we can help others as well. Uh, we need to have a clear message for people who are confused about this whole doctrine of what, how does a man get right with God. The greatest assistance that we can render to those people is to present a plain, simple, biblical presentation of the gospel. And if we're really... By the way, uh, uh, you ever notice that the Apostle Paul, that whatever the Apostle Paul did, he always go back to his people? Now, he was called to be the, 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 uh, the Apostle to the Gentiles. But remember, even though Paul is the Apostle to the Gentiles, everywhere Paul went, where did he went first? Synagogue. See? He loved his people. Do you love your people? I repeat, do you love your people? If you have a passion for your people and a real love for your people. By the way, read Romans chapter 10. Paul said to God, I, I would rather that you, you, I be a curse. You damn me if Israel be saved. That's, the, that's the, the affection he had for his people. Do we have any inkling of that? Any minuscule of that kind of concern for our own people? We talk cream and lipskin milk. I said it again and again. But we need to, I think we would, we, one of the ways, is one of the ways we could help other people. And then fourthly, there's nothing that will strengthen your faith than this chapter. To see the Apostle Paul giving you a bird's eye view of this great doctrine of salvation. Nothing is more glorious than see the Apostle Paul doing it. And it strengthens you and strengthens me and strengthens our faith. To see that this matter of salvation was not something contingent or accidental. But it was something that God planned from the beginning. And he had already began to put it into practice from the dawn of history. We're talking about Abraham, you know. We're talking way back then. This great plan was already put in place. Oh, my dear friend, if that doesn't strengthen your understanding and your faith in the living God, and that his ways are past finding out, and that he has started this process and it continues, I don't know what else could help you in this matter. The fact that God saves all men the same way, Jew and Gentile alike, they all come to the same door. And the same way Abraham was saved by putting his faith in the seed that would come. Because if you read the prophecy, we talk about the seed being Christ. He was saved looking forward to the Messiah to come. We are saved looking back at the fact that the Messiah has already come. It's the same faith. It must be faith in Christ. That's the argument. And I think that that will help your faith and to grow your faith as an individual. Now I'm going to stop here uh, this morning and I will pick up the uh, particular exposition of this passage. But... The main part I am going to concentrate on is this whole matter of what is real, true, saving faith. Because I think Paul covers that part of it in the latter part of it. And I want to emphasize that. And the reason why I am going to emphasize that is because I cannot emphasize that all faith is not saving faith. You will see the quality of Paul's, of, of, uh, of uh, Abraham's faith in this chapter. And you'll see what, what type of faith really, really saves. Uh, we'll come to that as we come to the final part of this chapter. This morning, if you're here, I don't know if you're confused by what you're hearing out there. 
So you visit one church this Sunday, they tell you one thing, you go to another church this Sunday, you're like a rambling rose. You're like a butterfly flitting from church to church. And you hear one thing here, and you hear another thing here, and, you, you know, and, and you're totally confused. I don't know what to believe, Pastor. Let me just say to you, get grounded in the Word. You said, but you, you may not need this now, but I tell you, the time is coming. The time is coming when you're going to need something really solid to hold on to. You cannot live by your emotional highs. You can't even do that in a marriage. You've got good times, you've got bad times. But what keeps you is your commitment. Your commitment. And I want to say to you, similarly when it comes to the Christian faith, your hard times are coming, your difficult times are coming, your storms are coming. And when the storm comes, you need an anchor. That anchor is truth. Let it be grounded in truth, because it doesn't change. So if you're here this morning, and you say, Pastor, what's the Bible all about? Simple. From beginning to end, it's about the redemption story, human redemption. Pastor, what do I need to be saved? It's very, very simple. Abraham got saved the same way you will get saved. Faith in the Messiah. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's how you got saved. See? And that will help you to grow and develop your Christian faith and become fortified. If you need uh, to discuss any matter this morning, uh, maybe I said something that uh, I've offended you. Um, all I will say to you that you're not going to get an apology from the pastor if you cannot show him from scripture that he's wrong. See? Uh, we hold strongly to these beliefs and we don't compromise on these issues. And we have to say some very harsh things sometimes because not everybody is right. Not everybody is true. And I, I, I've said this, the greatest sin you could commit today is to tell somebody they're wrong. Because we've now reached a stage where we must tolerate anything and any belief anybody says. So for me or anybody to tell another person wrong is that you're playing God now. See? But wrong is wrong if it is contrary to scripture. It doesn't matter who you are. Wrong is wrong in that regard. If you're not saved and you do not know Christ as your savior. This could be the turning point in your life. See? If you're holding on to something this morning and I pulled the rug from under your feet. You don't have to fall. You can fall in the arms of Jesus and be saved. But don't leave here as you came in. Well, pastor, I came in here believing this and I couldn't care what you said. That's your problem, sir, not mine. My job is to open the truth to you and you embrace it or you reject it. There are no two ways about that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for those who sat and listened. And I trust that something we've said this morning would have given the Holy Spirit the ammunition that he needs uh, to break down the wall of resistance that are formed and to undermine the calluses that surround the human heart. The falsehood that we have embraced for so long and the unwillingness to surrender what we know not to be true. Would you help us this morning uh, to get a grasp of what the Apostle Paul is teaching? Would you help us to see that in a world of confusion, the Bible brings the greatest clarity to these matters. It tells us exactly what God says and what man needs to do. 
It doesn't dilly-dally. It doesn't misrepresent the facts. It speaks to the facts with great clarity. We thank you for the masterful way in which the Apostle Paul is dealing with this subject. We pray that our minds might embrace and comprehend the truths of what Paul is saying here. Oh God, this morning, help us to see that we have a ministry to others. We should have a deep compassion and we want to help others. And there's no greater way to help them to give them a clear understanding of what this gospel is and how they to be saved. God, give us a, a real appreciation for this great book, especially the book of Genesis. Being attacked right, left, and center. Being undermined. Great intellectual arguments used against it. But yet, the Apostle Paul once again calls it the scripture. Give us the assurance that we can depend upon your word. And have, us, have a greater appreciation that if this book falls, and if this book is undermined, the very superstructure of Christianity uh, is also undermined and falls with it. And then, Lord... We all need our faith to be strengthened. We all need to be encouraged. We all need to know with certainty what we believe, if it is true or not. Fortify our hearts, O God, in this matter. Help us to know your joy as we understand your truth. Allow that your Holy Spirit would work because the only instrument he has to work with is the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And he generates faith and trust in us and produces the fruit in our lives as we comprehend truth, apprehend truth, embrace truth, and appropriate that truth in our lives. And then finally, Lord, if there's any one person here this morning that is not saved, they came in here lost, and they're about to leave here lost. Holy Spirit, speak to that one. Move that person's heart. Open their eyes to the truth and bring the conviction that is needed for them to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Would you take over the balance of the service as we come to close this morning? Have your way. Whatever is done, we'll give you glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Be sure you join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy shows us what genuine, authentic, saving faith is. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street, in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.